Welcome to Plodcast, episode 11. Good to have you here. So I want to talk a little bit about the deep state. Uh, as those who follow the news have seen night after night, President Trump is in an ongoing tangle with Washington's bureaucrats and with um, bureaucrats and, and, and people involved with the various intelligence gathering agencies. And uh, Trump has fought with tweets and, uh, and actions he's proposed, and the deep state has fought back by means of leaks. All right, so the thing that I want to talk about here has nothing to do with defending the president or, or arguing his position or carrying any water for him. Um, I want to assume that it, President Trump could be President Clinton, could be President Bush, could be, you know, whatever president, put in whatever last name you want to put in there. Um, it is manifest that our intelligence agencies have been politicized. In other words, if this were done to any president, I, as it happened, I didn't vote for our current president, I didn't vote for President Trump, didn't vote for the previous president, and uh, and so this is not a partisan point that I'm making. What I'm arguing is that uh, the state, basically the executive agencies, the executive branch of government, is is not elected by the people, and because it's not elected by the people, it ought not to have it ought not to have any business trying to steer public policy. It doesn't matter who you are. So, so for example, when, when we are told that we need to uh, extend the Patriot Act or we need to give intelligence gathering agencies uh, greater and greater power in order to protect us from the terrorists, in order to uh, keep our country safe or to keep the homeland safe, what I do, my reaction to this is I, I want to do a cost-benefit analysis. In other words, what are my chances, what are the odds of a terrorist attack affecting me, and what are the odds of the intelligence-gathering capacity that these agencies want being used in a conscientious way such that they are able to prevent that attack? That's one scenario. The other scenario is what are the odds of this agency using its intelligence gathering capacity for political purposes to steer elections or to undermine a president or to keep a particular piece of legislation from going forward. Well, we, we have seen over the last six months, we have seen instance after instance of raw politics coming out of the intelligence agencies and them using the information that they've gathered under the protection of we're doing this for national security being used to embarrass or take out a nominee or to um, discredit someone basically you have intelligence agencies playing politics now it's bad enough having regular politicians doing political things but why on earth would we want someone who's politically invested, why on earth would we want someone who's a political player to have access to all of our phones? Why would we want anybody who's that political 
or that partisan to have access to all of our computers. Why? It's it's simply astonishing to me that people say, well, yes, that we've had this leak and this leak and this leak and this leak, and yet we can trust these agencies to do the right thing. We're going to give them more power because because terrorism. I'm sorry. Um, If you've proven yourself either untrustworthy or incompetent. So basically, let me make another qualification here. There are, uh, there are, I know, many good, conscientious people working in the intelligence agencies, and they're working in them because they do want to keep the country safe. When I write about this sort of thing, I periodically hear from people who are hurt or offended that I am taking this stand because they, they work so hard, they're trying so hard, and, and why can't I be appreciative? Well, the, the difficulty is, it's, it's either, this is the difficulty, either all the intelligence agencies are evil top to bottom and they are corrupted. The power they've had has corrupted them. And so they will fight like a politicized, the, like the politicized agencies they are. And every, everybody there is wicked. That's one possibility. Or the other possibility is that there are good guys and bad guys uh, uh, mixed in through all through the different agencies, the CIA and the and that National Security Agency and so on. And so I don't have any problem uh, acknowledging, and I would opt for the latter scenario. I think they're good guys and bad guys. But when I say that they're good guys and bad guys, what is evident is that the good guys are not running the show. The good guys are not in charge. The good guys are not in a position to demand an investigation to find out who leaked all these um, national secrets for political purposes and, uh, and send the perpetrators to jail. So my, my question is, so, so whenever any proposal comes up where the intelligence gathering agencies need more power or we need this... Uh, uh, we need basically workarounds around the Fourth Amendment. We need we, we need to recognize that we're in a new electronic era and things are not the you know not the way it used to be, uh, so on. I I would just have a simple response. Uh, okay, look at all these leaks that happened over the last half year. How many people? How many of the people responsible uh, for these leaks have been caught, and how many of them are currently? serving time or are on trial. If you were able to say, well, 100% of them were caught, all of them have been tried, and 98% of them have been convicted, and and so you can trust us with more power. I think that's a reasonable debate to have. I still might have, uh, I still might have objections on, on other grounds, but this argument would be gone. Basically, the, the, the argument I'm putting forward now is that the agencies are either unwilling or unable to stop the radical politicalization of their um, techniques, of their information, of their data. And if if you care at all about individual liberty, you should be deathly opposed to all this sort of thing. Here in Plotcast, episode 11, I want to talk uh, in our book slot, in our book section, about a book that actually had a, a huge impact on my life. I, I, now, I think it's a good book. I, I, I do recommend the book. Uh, 
I think it may have had the impact it did because of the timing of it, uh, where, when it came and how it came and so on. But here it is. The book is The Puritan Hope by Ian Murray. Ian Murray is the Banner of Truth guy who's written biographies of Martin Lloyd-Jones and Jonathan Edwards. and He's done a lot of fine work. He's written a number of uh, historical sketches, uh, historical things that he's, he's addressed. Uh, sketches is not the right word, but one of the books he wrote was The Puritan Hope. And this this book demonstrates uh, several things. One, the, the common uh, and very pervasive premillennial gloom that attends much of evangelicalism in North America is widespread. It's overwhelmingly uh, the, the majority report among evangelicals here. And that is the conviction that the world's falling apart. Everything's getting worse and worse. We're, you know, it's, um, it's all coming apart at the seams. That majority report was not the way it was for centuries. So after the Reformation and down through the early part of the 1800s, there was a strong, vibrant, robust, post-millennial expectation. And Ian Murray describes uh, this Puritan hope, this post-mill expectation in, the, in this book, The Puritan Hope. And he describes the, the role that it had in motivating evangelistic expansion and the, the explosion of world mission and so on. So uh, David Livingston, the famous, um, the famous missionary, uh, William Carey, and a number of earlier uh, Puritans had had the idea, and the, which they gathered from the New Testament, which, it, I, well, Old Testament and New Testament together, that the Great Commission was going to be successfully fulfilled. In other words, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go, disciple the nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, all authority is mine, therefore go, and bring the nations back to me. Um, the, the nations are mine, I, these nations are mine, I've purchased them with my uh, blood, I have ascended into heaven, and the Father, as, as he is told in Acts 2, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The Lord Jesus says, all of this is mine, the authority is mine, and I have indeed asked for them, and now you go get them. Now, shortly after the Reformation, down through the early part of the 1800s, so that'd be at least a couple, at least a couple hundred years, the overwhelming expectation of evangelical Protestants was that this was actually going to happen in history, that the Great Commission would be successfully fulfilled, the earth would be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, what Ian Murray does in this book is he describes how this hope this expectation um, motivated missionaries, how it motivated men to go, how it motivated people to be able to go to a, a closed country and, and do so with, with the full expectation that that continent or that nation or that people would one day be opened up, would one day come to Christ, would one, be, one day be part of, the, uh, part of the tribes that streamed to the rod of Jesse. So, um, that, that book in my life came at a time when I needed that particular kind of encouragement 
and it showed me that the the kind of pessimistic gloom that surrounded me on every hand at that time was uh, ill-placed. So I commend it to you, Banner of Truth Trust, published The Puritan Hope, Ian Murray. In previous episodes, we've talked about adikia, the word for unrighteousness or iniquity. And and here we come to a related word, part of the same word group, the adjective adikos. And this is rendered as unjust or unrighteous. Um, but the ad, it, we're talking here about the adjectival use. There are two kinds of people, the just and the unjust. And God gives rain and sunshine to both of them. That's in Matthew 5.45. The faith of Israel was fixed on this, that at the end of history, there'd be a resurrection of both kinds of men, the just and the unjust. Acts 24.15. So unjust men and just men are both going to be resurrected. At that resurrection, the Lord will bring the punishment that he's been holding in reserve against the unjust. That's in 2 Peter 2.9. The Pharisee was grateful to God that he was not like other men who were unjust, Luke 18.11. But because he went home unjustified, he was in for a shock on the day of judgment, on that, on that day of judgment, when God would separate those who, who were truly just from those who were truly unjust. So the, the Pharisee in the temple says, I thank you, God, that I'm not unjust like those other guys. And then he went home unjustified. He, I thank you, God, that I'm not unjust, but he was unjust. God is qualified to render this judgment because he is ultimately and perfectly just himself. Is God unrighteous if he judges unrighteousness, even if that unrighteousness makes him look good by comparison? That's the argument Paul answers in Romans uh, 3, 5. Of course not, and don't be silly, Paul might add. But if God forgot our labors for him, then he would in fact be unjust. That's Hebrews six ten. But he will never forget our ministry of love to one another. So uh, the Bible teaches that God cannot be unjust, and it would be unjust if he forgot what we've done for him. If, we forgot our, if he forgot our labors on his behalf, and he neglected to take note of them, that he would, in fact, be unjust. But he's not that. When Paul prohibits Christians from going to law against uh, fellow Christians in front of unbelievers, he calls it going to, going to law before the unjust, 1 Corinthians 6.1. If the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom, 6.9, then why do you let them settle your disputes? And besides, why would you want your case heard in a court when that court is run by the unjust? Perhaps that is why you want it heard, huh? Right? If There are some people who want their case heard in a corrupt court. They want their case heard in an unjust court. And that's because their case is unjust. Their, their cause is unjust. Now, um, I do need to qualify something because many Christians uh, glide right by this point. Paul is not prohibiting Christians going to civil court with other Christians. Paul is prohibiting going before an unbelieving civil court with other Christians. So let's say you, uh, if we um, went back through history and found, found a, a period of time when you had Christian laws, a Christian nation, a Christian commonwealth, a Christian judge, and two Christians who had a barking dog dispute or who had a, a, a fa- financial dispute, 
and they took their their dispute to civil court, but it was a believing court. It was a Christian court. Christ was honored. There is no there is no problem at all in having their case heard by uh, a believing court by a believing judge. Paul's problem was that you're you you all are Christians, and you're taking this in front of an unjust judge. You're taking this to be adjudicated by the unjust. That's the problem. They're unbelieving. They're unjust. So those who are unjust in petty trans- transactions will also be unjust in weightier matters. Uh, we're taught in Luke 16.10. Those petty transactions frequently involve unrighteous mammon, 16.11, which means that Jesus is teaching us to be righteous in little things with petty unrighteous means so that we will then receive true riches. And last, Christ suffered on the cross in a substitutionary and vicarious way, the just instead of the unjust, 1 Peter 3.18. This is why there are two kinds of people in the world, the just and the unjust. If Christ had not died, the just for the unjust, then there would be no just men at all. All of us would be unjust. But because Christ died on behalf of his elect, because Christ died on behalf of his people, they have been justified, they've been put right, they've been made right, they've been made worthy, and they have been made just. And so we now have two categories of people in the world, the just and the unjust. God in the time of the sickness, God in the You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.